Doing Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. Hey everyone, um, this is season two of Doing Diversity in Writing, and I am with Marielle as I am every week. But today we are also interviewing with Claire Sager. And um, say hi, everyone. Hi. Hello. Let's just jump in and um, welcome Claire and tell everyone about her and get into the questions if you don't mind. Yes, let's do that. Okay. So Claire Sager is an office lackey turned full-time author with both a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's of Arts, Arts and Creative Writing. She is now living her lifelong dream of writing fantasy adventure stories of swoon-worthy, troublesome men and strong, sassy women who can handle them. When she's not writing or master planning her next book, she's an editor, outline coach, and formatter. In her spare time, she enjoys reading, sewing, and lifting weights at the gym. She's as shocked by the latter as anyone. Her stationary addiction knows no bounds with a washi tape and fountain pen collection to rival that of the stationary stool. She loves to spend time chilling out with her planner, plotting world domination. She likes cats, coffee, and cocktails and speaks fluent sarcasm. Welcome, Claire. Oh, thank you so much. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. So glad that somebody else speaks fluent sarcasm. I was about to say, I love that. <laughs> I, I learned the word today, sarcasm, as in the gap that exists when somebody doesn't get your sarcasm. Yeah, uh, that was going to be my guess as to its meaning. And yeah, I have encountered that a few times. <laughs> Same. People think I'm too serious. Like, they don't get it often. Yeah, it can be like sometimes people say it in too deadpan a way. I, have, I find myself having to, like, pull really over-the-top facial expressions so people get that I'm joking. <laughs> Yes, and, I'm, and I often say, you really think I would be serious about that? Uh, yeah, you don't yeah, know me at all. <laughs> okay. So welcome to, uh, what was it, episode 10? I think it's going to be episode 10. I would have to check our calendar because we've had to reschedule this around life events. I think I had COVID when we were supposed to record this the first time. Yes, and then your computer crashed. It didn't just crash. It completely died and I had to ship it to Texas. Claire, Marielle, you two actually know each other to some extent, um, but this is the first time Claire and I are talking. So how do you two know each other? Well, this is also the first time Claire and I are talking because we kind of were both at a conference in Edinburgh in 2019 before COVID. Mm. Before the, our life, before the pandemic, but we didn't actually meet. I think we just started hanging out online due to mutual friends. Do you know what it was? You posted, it might have been in the group or else just on Facebook about doing tarot readings. It was after I had left and I was like, oh my God, it's like, I'm into tarot. <gasps> like, and, yes. and so it's like, I'd missed you, but we got talking because of that. Yes, and then I remember because also I am a big fan of Claire's work, and I'm actually on her beta team. 
But the thing is that I remember from the conference, because I think Stuart Bach showed your cover during yes. his talk, and I just fell in love with it so much. And I know you're changing everything now, but I have opinions about that that I'm not going to share because um, <laughs> I love it. Um, so I remember like buying your book. And then when the pandemic started, we had our first lockdown. That's when I read it. And then I just sort of read everything that you had. And that's why you're on my beta team. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is actually, yeah, this is the first time. So we have talked like on, on Facebook and stuff, but but we've never actually talked in, in real life. The so actual this, voices. <laughs> yeah. But it's fun how that goes in, in groups like this. Like you can just connect over something. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like so many people. Um, I mean, I've got some people that are really close friends with that I talk to like every day but I've never met them in person or yeah. haven't yet we're also yeah. two years into this pandemic so <sighs> virtual friends are a thing yes. <laughs> we've hit the mainstream <laughs> it's been two years today since the first infected person arrived from the UK in Cyprus so they were oh, like wow. oh it's been two years they, they, I was like don't don't it's write like, like is- that like it's a yeah. celebration <laughs> like it's oh yeah so Claire, one, I know why I wanted to have you on the show. Would you say that you write characters outside or perhaps beside your own identities and experiences in your work? Yeah, so we kind of touched upon this a bit before we start recording. But I mean, obviously, for people listening, I am a cis woman. I look pretty white, although I'm half British and half Turkish Cypriot. So like that half of my family have brown skin, basically. And they are Muslim. I've also lived with anxiety all my life. So all of those things absolutely inform what I write. But obviously, that's not the only thing I write. I do write fantasy. So no experiences are ever quite the same. You know, obviously, the history of my fantasy world doesn't have the same background and same history and same tensions as the real world I think one of the things I enjoy about fantasy is there's always that level of removal then allows you to explore real world issues but from a slightly different angle and in a slightly different way is that why you set up your world the way it was to do like a sort of a what if yeah yeah exactly so if you looked at a a map of the world that I write in which I call the saber verse um, after the saber cats in it um, it basically looks like earth on a map but the history and everything, the way that's all played out is really different. For example, there are no monotheistic religions in that world. There was empire back in roughly sort of essentially the Roman era, but then there hasn't been empire since then. So a lot of the issues that I see is um, maybe coming from ideas of empire and certain ideas that certain monotheistic religions have, haven't played out in that world, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so what did you used to inform your world and what issues do you have playing out I often pull out things that I have seen in real life because as I said this is I think for me the beauty of fantasy that you can rather than saying to someone I'm going to tell you a story that's about uh, the me too movement for example and someone goes oh no I don't I just came for a bit of a fun story and an adventure and some romance like I'm not interested in reading about something as heavy as that Rather than having that, I can say, oh, I'm going to tell you a swashbuckling romance story with a little bit of serial killing and Me Too movement adjacent stuff going on. So like Marielle, you've read the Second Counterfeit Contessa book, and that basically really has a strong thread of um, 
essentially all the things behind the Me Too movement, like um, sexual assault and so on, run through that. So that was completely directly inspired by things as diverse as the Jack the Ripper killings in the late um, 19th century, as well as, as like my experiences, friends' experiences, things like that in the real world. Yeah, that was a really brutal book to read. It was pretty uh, dark to write. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was only imagine. It was really good, but it was really. Um, it, I had moments that I was like, "Am I am I gonna read through this, or do I need a break?" Mm. And not not a break in terms of, "Oh, it's getting boring," but more, "I'm afraid this is gonna get worse." Mm. So, do I stop now, um, or do I go to the next page? Um, but because it's fantasy, it is easier to get through. It is easier to grapple with. We can yeah. go places. And also, like you said, you you brought in something from Jack the Ripper, like which is historical. I believe later 1800s UK? Yeah, yeah. It was, I want to say, 1888 off the top of my head. That matches with what I was going to guess, but I'm not <laughs> as up on UK history. Um, and, and then something extremely modern. I mean, to me, that is the magic of fantasy is just the flexibility of what you can deal with in not necessarily a safe space, but definitely a more creative and flexible space. Yeah, it's kind of a step removed. So it, I think sometimes people don't um, bring the same biases in that they maybe would have in a, a story that is purporting to be in, quote unquote, the real world. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. Yeah, what I found really interesting is that it's not sat in a world. It's not sat in a part of the world that I'm used to reading about. Mm. It reminded me a bit of like Istanbul, Constantinople. Yeah, is, is yep. that where it's supposed to be set, kind of? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So again, if you would say so I've called it the city Arianople, so I wanted to change it slightly, but it's basically roughly 18th century Constantinople. Um, as was then, or Istanbul now. Um, I even went to Istanbul a few years ago and uh, made sure that I hit up some of the sites that I had included and wanted to include in the future of the book. Um, for me, part of the reason of doing that was, like I mentioned, I'm half British and then half Turkish Cypriot. So I kind of wanted to create this culture that was, that was like I am, a combination of the two. Um, uh, I found it really interesting like when I was at university studying I did English and creative writing and in studying English we talked a lot about um, orientalism and this idea that western Europe and especially I'd say Britain looked to the east as this like exotic the jewel of the orient and all of that kind of idea and and you would see um, Middle Eastern influences especially like Turkish ones in the 18th century for example and Persian stuff like that um, and then especially I think more so going into the uh, 19th century you would see um, going out to India and then the Far East and China and so on and all of those influences being the new big fashionable fad in Britain and Western Europe um, in case you can't tell I find history really interesting it's like one of my <laughs> biggest influences and inspirations but I was kind of look at history and then go okay but what if this instead so the idea with um, Arianople um, and, and this country Thanatolia was that okay well what if that was the opposite way around what if orientalism was the opposite 
So rather than a bunch of white people in Britain going, oh, fashionable, exotic East, we've got people in Arianople who are um, from Africa, Asia, the Middle East. Um, if they're looking to the West as the fashionable place that they're taking inspiration from. And so it's like, oh, this is the latest thing out of London or, or Paris or whatever. And, and that's the new fad. So that was kind of my idea. And they view that as exotic. Yeah, because that was what I found really interesting. When we were doing the first episode of this season on skin color, I was just sort of randomly going through like all the books on my Kindle seeing how the authors I have on there, what they did around skin color, like how mm. did they write skin? And that's when I noticed that in your first book, the only skin you describe is that of, of a white woman. Mm. That just blew my brain because I thought that was, <laughs> I'm assuming you did that on purpose. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. In that story, there's Derry, who is the one and only white character there. Um, everyone else is basically, like I said, a mix of Middle Eastern, African, Asian, um, and those kind of descended from those and mixes of those. To me, it just seems so, well, I know obviously one of the problems that you often get in, in fiction that's, that's written by white people, as a lot of it that gets published tends to be, is that I can't help but kind of dip into kind of my literature, academia kind of background, but it's always the other that is described mm -hmm. because, you know, white people go, oh, well, that white person, they just look like me, whereas then they spend half a page describing the colour of this person's skin when it's a person of colour. And you're like, mm. <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. yeah, way to make that person seem even more of an other. So I just, you know, like I said, when I was had this idea of, OK, but well, what if, if this story is here and it's looking to the West as exotic? That's what's going to be the other and what's going to look different and what's going to stand out, um, whereas to um, the characters from Arianople, people of colour is the norm. These pale people, that's the, oh, that's interesting. That's the thing that will stand out. And, and, and like I said, I wanted to do that because I kind of, I wondered and I hoped if, I didn't want to go obviously too crazy because I wanted to be decent writing, but um, I was hoping maybe white people might read it and think, oh, this is weird. Like I feel odd and I don't know maybe even give them an experience of othering which maybe they've never had before yeah what I found also interesting is that there is a class difference mm. so Derry is a she's a freed she was freed um or bought I think there was a money exchange I think right fake money as it turned out so yeah oh <laughs> okay yeah so she was she was freed by the main character Mm -hmm. Just, just um, so the uh, listeners can know, which book series are we talking about right now again? So this is where I'm, I'm being overcomplicated because I've actually taken those books down and I'm going to be re-releasing them over like the next year. So there used to be uh, A Thief and a Gentleman was book one and book two was A Sleuth and a Charlatan and that series was called Counterfeit Contessa. <laughs> They're both, like I say, I've taken them both down. They are um, going to be coming back out as The Prince and the Thief. And I haven't revealed the name for book two yet. But yeah, so that's, but that'll be the series name. And there's a, a prequel came out November last year. Okay. We'll put all the links in the show notes, but I just, <laughs> yeah. I know some people will want to go yeah. look this up. 
And I know that this is the complicated bit because I know you are rewriting or working on these books and going to release them, but I still Mm. wanted to talk about them. For me, it was very exciting. The woman of color protagonist, we usually see as the the exotic other, Mm. is the one who frees this very pale skinned slave. Exactly. So I think like one of the things, you know, I said about, I took out that idea of empire and some of the things around that. So in my world, there is slavery, but it's much more based upon people being like the spoils of war and things like that. So the people who are enslaved in this world are from all over. And yeah, again, it's, I suppose in a way it's kind of trying to counteract that uh, white saviour kind of narrative as well. Yeah. So it's all reversed, basically. Yeah, yeah, basically, in a lot of ways, I've just gone, hmm, well, this is a bit of a cliche that you see a lot that could be kind of problematic. I wonder if people will see it differently if they if they see a narrative where it's played out in the opposite way. Yeah, well, I noticed that, but I, I don't know if other people, did anybody else ever mention anything? I think I've had people kind of comment on it being unusual that it's a fantasy book that is, well, a lot of people comment on the fact it's a fantasy book in a different setting from usual it's not medieval Europe and I've had I have had people sort of comment I was like oh actually now I think of it yeah all of all of these characters are people of color except for one that is unusual so I think kind of people have yeah picked up on bits and pieces that was really exciting for me your other uh, series mm-hmm. how, what's I don't even know the name I know the, the, the titles but what what is the name of the full series so that one I've just is just named after the first book so that's beneath black sails okay that makes it easy yeah that's why I did that <laughs> So that is set in the same in, in the same universe. Mm-hmm. That is actually from the Albion. Is it you call it Albion? Yes, yeah. So the main character in that is from the equivalent of Britain, which is called Albion. But most of the action takes place in the Caribbean because as the as the Black Sails bit of the name might suggest, it's a pirate book. And of course you've got to have pirate book in the Caribbean, right? Yes, basically. Yeah. It's the law. <laughs> so, Claire, are there any stereotypes or tropes around um, any of your own identities or experiences that you find annoying or perhaps even harmful? Um, as I mentioned, sort of some of my identities, I've always um, people tend to look at me and think, "Oh, she's white, but she's foreign white." Like I often get looked at, like people often ask me where I'm from. I've been asked if I speak English, things like that. The kind of the one or the ones that stand out for me the most are, um, so like I mentioned, half my family are Muslim. And obviously that was an interesting thing to experience around like the London bombings and 9-11 and things like that. Um, I remember obviously when there were a lot of you know people that would essentially eye up brown skinned men with beards which is what my father is, with suspicion. Like, you know, I, I literally was saying to him, don't go on the London Underground with a rucksack on and things like that, because especially after a, a man was basically shot by the London police for looking dodgy at some point after the London bombings, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't doing anything wrong, but he got shot dead. And it's like, that was very much, that, yeah, really affected me and sort of stood out in my mind and, and it gave me a lot of concerns um, for my father and for other members of my family who look like that. Uh, sorry, what did you say, Bethany? I was like, that that's a fear that's difficult to live with. And you have to just keep going, but you're still thinking about it all the time. 
yeah exactly um so it was that and also when I was probably a bit younger than that say when I was like 16 17 18 I can remember on a number of occasions going somewhere with my dad and there was this weird thing would happen people would look at me and assume I was his wife it was like this really horrible icky assumption about Middle Eastern men and then that their wives are childlike or very young like submissive powerless women and like people people just say oh is your wife blah 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 it's like this is my daughter like what um so that that made me go oh okay people because like I said when people see me I think they generally see a foreign white woman like I get people maybe think I'm Eastern European or Spanish or Italian um or something like that maybe Middle Eastern but that really showed me it's like oh okay so that's what people see when they see a Middle Eastern man and a Middle Eastern woman and that, yeah that was like okay it's an interesting one that is I'm I'm sort of trying to close my jaw here <laughs> yeah and, and literally I was like 15 and 16 when this would happen and obviously my father's like 28 years older than me something like that about 30 years older than me and yeah people people on more than one occasion thought that I was his wife or me and hell they probably even thought I was one of his wives frankly like that was the way they were treating us did that in any way inform help you decide to set yours I forget how it's going to be called the reverse othering that appears in your work perhaps yeah from a young age I was very much aware that although I look quite white I also look different and um like when I would go and visit my grandmother like on my father's side you know I don't I didn't call her grandmother or grandma if I called her nene that's Turkish for grandmother and we would do things around Eid or whatever and we would have Turkish food and you know all of these things and she doesn't write English very well and I've got family that I can't speak to directly because they only speak Turkish and I don't speak Turkish so all of those things have informed all of my life growing up and and things like that and so I think that it's made me much more aware of othering and diversity than maybe my friends whose families are all Western European say so I think it's always just made me very conscious of those things, which then, like you said, Bethany has made me, when I've then come to write, I haven't just gone, right, so obviously everyone is is white and cisgender and like middle class or whatever and, and heterosexual. Actually, there's a much bigger palette in the world at, at play that I can work with and, and include in my fictional writing because frankly that's the way the world is <laughs> it really is the world is yeah. way way more diverse than you would think on this than than we've written into our literary english lexicon oh yeah yeah definitely yes, the canon is so limited but i think that is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is because mm. we want to encourage people to look further the thing is i do think that we tend to, at least when we start writing, I think we might tell stories that are familiar to us, whether that's our own story or whether that's sort of like stories that we've read. Mm. Um, and if, of course, if the canon is this limited, then we are gonna to rep- we're going to reproduce mm. certain stories, certain plot lines, certain tropes. 
Uh, and I think we need to challenge that. So, uh, exactly, yeah. so were there any other stereotypes beyond your own identities that you find um, harmful or annoying that I mean, you try to work with as an author or that you're just conscious of as a reader? When I was writing what is going to become The Prince and the Thief, when I was first writing that, I actually deliberately, when I would get to, you know, like if you have a, a side character has to come on to do whatever, like whether it's the person letting that person into something or that's working at a shop or something, or is maybe a judge or something like that. Unless there was a specific reason for them to be a specific gender, I was literally flipping a coin to decide whether they were presented as a guy or a girl. Um, oh, I love that. Or because it was like, well, hang on a minute. I, I suppose I, I sort of was starting to notice some of my own unconscious biases coming out where I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, this, this is going to be a, um, a woman working in this kind of shop because it's this kind of. So hang on a second. Is there any reason for that to be a woman? Probably not. So flip a coin. I didn't want it to be, I suppose, gendered roles and I didn't want it to be oh well I've just fallen onto the quote like default of it being a guy so I literally was flipping a coin to decide whether that person like like say outward presentation because that's what the narrator's seeing whether they're a guy or a woman I think flipping the coin is a really good strategy for making these kind of decisions and I mean this this was oh my god I started writing that book in 2009 so I probably haven't even heard of like non-binary, to be honest, um, or like gender fluidity or anything. Whereas I think if I was doing the same thing now, I'd maybe have a dice and use more than just a binary in making that decision. But I've tried to kind of internalize that anyway and just be like, oh, hold on, this person is stepping forward. They can be a they, not a he or a she. Let's do that. So that there's that coming through in the um, Leafback Sales series, for example. And I've been doing that in the book I've been writing currently. I'm going to use that too, because I also always want to flip the script, basically. Mm. But sometimes I, I, I wonder where, because I don't really want to flip the script, because that's sort of, then we get stuck in the same binary, just, you know, the other way around. Mm. So how do you create a balance where everyone can just do whatever they want to do? And it doesn't really matter anymore which gender is doing what, like everybody can do whatever. So now I try to come up with reasons why a certain person likes to be in the kitchen and why another person um, likes to be in charge of the finances of the house, for example, mm. if it's a couple. Yeah, exactly. So um, like, oh, was, was actually her father was an accountant, so she, she deals with the family's finances or whatever. Yes, instead of just going, like, all the men are in the kitchen, because that was when I first started drafting my fantasy novel, I was more like, I'm just turning it completely upside down, and I thought that also doesn't work. Yeah, because there are women who like to cook. But I like Flip the Coin. I probably will be using that. And maybe I'll go for the dice as well. I don't know. This sounds like an excellent excuse to go buy some really pretty uh, Dungeons and Dragon dice that match. I would just whatever. say I do play D&D. So I do have a plethora of dice with many faces that are quite pretty. So it's quite a handy way to use them. <laughs> That's exactly what I was picturing. Like the more faces, the, the better, right? Yeah. Okay. D20, right. Go for it. <laughs> Have you reached that sweet place where you've written out your entire story? It's a wonderful feeling. You've worked so hard for this, spent so many long hours at the keyboard or talking to yourself every quarter, then going over it again at the computer. It's been mostly internal work, and it's often been alone. But now, 
it's time to take it from rough to polished. And for that, outside perspective is essential. Let me help you. As a developmental editor, I, Bethany A. Tucker, will take your hand, sort through your draft, answer your questions, and help you polish it until your work shines. You don't have to do this alone. It doesn't matter if this is your first book or your 10th book, whether you've published this book already and want to make it better, or you're teetering on the edge, eager to publish for the first time. Together, we can take your book to the next level. Contact me via links in the show notes or at theartandscienceofwords at gmail.com to take the next step. So I want to ask you, would you mind sharing some of the challenges that have come up for you in terms of plot or characters while writing these particular stories? And of course, we will very much like to know what helped you overcome these challenges. I mentioned earlier that, oh, you're writing a pirate story. Of course, it's got to be in the Caribbean. But obviously, that's problematic in itself. I mean, for one thing, there were there have been pirates in the Mediterranean. Uh, there's a very famous female pirate who I think was Chinese. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember his, her name now. But, you know, there have been pirates all over the world. Caribbean is obviously the kind of, I suppose, archetypal thing that comes to mind to me as a British person. But didn't want to perpetuate, like, colonial narratives in writing that. And I kind of, to be honest, that only struck me once I'd already started writing it. And and I went, ah, I hadn't really thought about this. And for me, I suppose because of all the things I've already spoken about, like the fact that I am, I try to be very conscious of, and and just naturally suppose I'm conscious that there is more than just the white, British, and with that obviously comes colonial narrative and all of that stuff. I always try to be very conscious of that and where I come from as a person makes me hopefully more conscious of that so as soon as I'm aware of something like that I need to act upon it I can't my integrity is very important to me so I sort of went ah right I need to make sure I'm not doing that some of the things that I'd already done in my world helped me with that so like I was saying with the fact that empire didn't play out in the world as it as it did in our world same thing with with slavery that's not the same like transatlantic slave trade that we have in our world so obviously my Caribbean was already very different so once I realized that ah, this can potentially be an issue that I didn't want to add to the suffering that had already happened in the real world like I didn't want to perpetuate that in a book or sweep it under the rug and thus like minimize it I kind of took a step back and thought okay how could things have potentially played out differently? Obviously, sort of Portugal and Spain, what they did in like Central and South America, and what Britain and settlers from here did in North America, especially as well as like France and so on, did the same, was like a horrific massacre. I absolutely don't deny that. And that's why I really wanted to do something different in this. So, like I said, I thought, okay, well, how could how could history have played out differently? And it's it's, it's that question that's at the centre of fiction writing, right? Is what if? That yes. is the center of fiction. So yeah, I kind of played with that idea, and I looked at again, like because I'm very inspired by history. If if anybody, if you if you're familiar with like Clifton or Gallup strengths, my number one strength is context, which tends to take information from the past, for example, to help build up a picture of now and the future, in very simple terms. So dipping into real life history and so on helped me kind of come up with the idea of okay, so. This, uh, when I say it out loud, almost sounds a bit ridiculous, but China uh, actually had a variolation for smallpox, like way 
I forget off the top of my head now how far in history, but they had that a really long time ago and I think they're meant to have invented it. So I thought, well, okay, in that case, what if China was the first contact between the old world and Americas um, and therefore everyone wasn't just wiped out by smallpox? And I kind of just played it, okay, so what if this, this initial contact came from a different way and what if they had firearms because of that? Because obviously... China and gunpowder and so on and that just kind of let me look at history in a different way and kind of paint it in a different way that didn't that meant that the like the indigenous people of North Central and South America weren't essentially horrific victims in history what if actually they found a way that they could survive and thrive and that therefore their cultures and way of life and so on was still a thriving real thing that was widespread and not limited to pockets and, and that was kind of what I tried to to create and um, their contact with Europe was on a much more even footing based upon trade rather than the horrors of empire and slavery if that makes any sense at all and it's a very no, long and rambling answer no it does <laughs> I love it I studied East Asian studies in China in uh, uni so like China did have this amazing navy and was trading seafaring mm. with the edge of Africa as you might know and it wasn't until this one king emperor got really really uppity and decided he was the center of the universe and that everyone had to come to him and then they kind of got rid of their navy at one point so if that hadn't happened China very well could have like colonized California um, which most people don't realize Russia actually started to do at one point Mm. that's yeah that's it and um I didn't know that about, but that makes a lot of sense. So thank you for that. That's really interesting. You probably set off some more ideas in my head. But um. there is an actual fort that you can go to that the Russians like build a trading post and a fort and everything on the coast. I think it's called Fort Ross now. In and I went there as a child and I was like, oh my gosh, the Russians were here, (laughs) like really here. When when was that? Um, early days. I mean, uh, how early is that? I'm I'm trying to remember. I think they may have clashed with the conquistadors, but I'm not exactly okay. sure. I'm like I went and visited the fort when I was seven, and it never showed up in my history book. So if I hadn't actually Ooh. been there, I wouldn't have known about it. Oh, that is really interesting. Oh, thank you. I'm gonna look that up. You know, to me, that actually makes a lot of sense that it didn't show up in history books because you know there's a very particular history that we're being taught. Yeah, because, you know, as we know, America was, I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see, discovered by Europeans, because before then it didn't exist. That yes. was me speaking my friend sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so as you can as you can probably tell by the tone of my sarcasm, that's the sort of thing that annoys me. Yeah. So well, this, we should probably do an episode on the history you don't know that would make your fantasy more interesting. Claire, what I find it, because I know your books, I've read them all, is that so much of that world building is it's it's not in your books like I had no idea that this was behind your reasonings mm-hmm. so I find that extremely interesting your world works like there's nowhere in the in your world that I'm like no this doesn't make sense so I guess that comes because you really thought it out very broadly I think of kind of like classic fantasy and a more I suppose modern breed of fantasy if you like and to me the classic fantasy is that super Tolkien-esque like super detailed world building and a lot of that world building is on the page Um, there's nothing wrong with that it's just not to my taste you know I I read that 
back when I was much younger, but it's not something that I can read now and it's something I want to write. I tend to write things that are, like I say, I consider more modern fantasy to wear its world building quite lightly. I suppose I try and think of it like a that cliched image of an iceberg where I maybe know all of this stuff, but you only see yeah. that thing at the tip. Because frankly, we're here to read about the fantasy adventure. And in my case, like people getting together and all of that good stuff and the banter and the fun. You know, you're probably not here to read about what happened 200, 300 years ago in my world. But yeah, I tried to show it in things like I'll mention that, that my equivalent of Europe was invited across to trade. Whereas before trade had all, I think I mentioned that trade had all gone through Asia from the Americas. But yeah, it's like that's one sentence in a series that is going to, like when I finish this last book, is going to be four novels plus a short novel. So it's probably a, getting on for like 500,000 words. There's one mm-hmm. sentence in that. Yeah. But I think that goes to show that you do need to know the whole iceberg when you write something like this to make it come across in, in, yeah. in, a, in the right way. Although what I would say, because I spent a very long time writing my writing life, not finishing books and not really getting very far in books. And one of the very many ways I managed to do that was thinking I needed to know everything about my entire fantasy world before I could start writing the story. You need to know how your iceberg works and how it floats and the bit that's below the surface, but you don't need to know it all before you start writing. There's definitely something like a lot of things that I've put in my world have developed as I've been writing and I've gone oh well uh, I wonder what would be behind this or why this would be like that or oh how does this work in this part of the world and things like that and I've worked it out as I've gone yeah like it shouldn't become another obstacle yeah yeah exactly like we have enough obstacles to writing like this (laughs) um I first sat down to write my very first novel I was like I'm gonna write a novel and I was like 11 or 12 years old and I didn't finish one until I was in my 30s. I know there are enough obstacles. Do not make your world building one of them. Yeah, no, I totally get that. But I, I do think, like you said, like you need to know how it works, but you'd also need to have that self-awareness to know that you're still figuring things out for the right mm. reason and not for the wrong reason, mm. yeah, which, yeah, is, exactly. which is, you know, as an excuse to not finish the damn thing. Yeah, or to not start it sometimes. <laughs> or that. So... You've talked about world building, um, knowing the iceberg. You've talked about where some of your ideas come from. As you, uh, as you're going through your work, when you're giving it that more editorial eye, mm. which I know you said before we got on the call that you often edit while you're writing. How do you calibrate your perspective and check your blind spots? I would say this is something that I could do better um I was going to say that from the start on that um I do work with beta readers to be honest they're kind of randomly chosen from um well not randomly but they are chosen from people who happen to be big fans of mine um but I'm, I'm, I don't currently work with sensitivity readers but that is something that I'm considering and looking at depending on what is coming through in particular books I'm working on. I do also dip into, I've got a couple of resources that I find really helpful. One is the Decolonial Atlas and the other one is, um, it's actually a Tumblr and I'm not like a big Tumblr generation kind of person, but writing with colour on Tumblr is 
incredible mm. yeah we've we've referred to their resource quite a few times yeah. I just thought so yeah I was like they're yeah. gonna know that it's yeah it's amazing I, when you're saying earlier about Marielle about me describing uh dairy skin tone and then other people's skin tone and things like that like they have certain of their articles on there are just so invaluable so I try and you know like I say read up and things like that and just engage in conversation online or even just sit back and read the conversations that other people are having online and go and as I'm reading them I'm going am I doing this am I inadvertently doing this and if particular concerns come to mind I try and raise those with like trusted people I can speak to and like I said uh, particularly with this colonial aspect for example in the pirate series you know something I've gone through I've gone through and discussed with people quite a bit but I would say that yeah I probably can do that better and I would like to try and involve people more in that I suppose sounds like you're definitely not working in a vacuum and you've also worked within the realm of your own experience and your family's experiences as well I've considered myself very lucky that I've had that experience because it allows me you know like white heterosexual Christian is not my default and never has been so whereas I think a lot of people for a lot of people it is and they never realize that that's their default because it's never highlighted as there ever really being anything else that could be their default or that they have to switch off of the default so yeah I consider myself really lucky to have that lens that I see the world through so hopefully that keeps me away and like I said I did when I was at university obviously you study oh I mean the literary canon is a thing but uh mm-hmm. But, but did you notice that it's all white guys? Yes, I did notice that. You know, so we did work about gendered language and post-colonialism and all that sort of thing. And um, like my BA dissertation, uh, thinking back now, because it's quite a while ago, but I looked at eco-critical theory, for example, and feminism in my dissertation. So that made me very aware of power structures back in my 20s and kind of the the way that they rely upon binaries and othering and denigrating the binary they want to keep out of power and things like that so I think kind of I suppose if I were to try and phrase that in a way that could be helpful to people it's maybe to research and be curious about the world and learn about these things so and 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 they those the things that you learn about will start changing your lens. What comes out of the end of your pencil or on your keyboard, to be honest. Exactly. It's like they, those things that come out have to come out of something going in. It has yeah. to be an input for there to be an output. And if your life and input has always been white, heterosexual, Christian, middle class, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, unsurprisingly, that's what's going to come out of, like you say, your pen or your keyboard. Could you name one or two authors who you think do diversity well in their writing? Yeah, so a couple for me would be um, Anne Leckie's Imperial, I'm never quite sure how to say it, Ratch, R-A-D-C-H is the name of the trilogy. So Imperial Ratch, Ratch. Um, It starts with a book called Ancillary Justice. So I don't often read sci-fi. But this one was, I found really fascinating because she's writing about, and I read this several years ago now, so I'm hazy on some of the details, but this really stands out to me still all these years later. And I always forget stuff in books. She's writing about a kind of um, essentially an empire where there is no gender. Everyone is she. Everyone is referred to as she. And it really 
massively plays with your perception and your assumptions when you're reading because it is never indicated to you that this person is male female cisgender whatever like there is it literally people just refer to as she all of them and that really um so she she becomes like human sorry like we, we we often think like when we look at language like you can refer to he right oh, like you yeah like right it's like you know man refers yeah. to all of humankind so this is turned around everybody is a she exactly yeah there's nothing else yeah that's kind of interesting yeah yeah and it, you know and you had things like people having relationships in that and you kind of went oh I found myself for some reason I had always pictured this person in a more feminine way so, and it's just yeah it, it, because of the way it's written you really start becoming conscious about your how you perceive gender and your assumptions around yeah I just found that really fascinating flip of like you say that the idea is like oh he is can mean her as no I can't use they <laughs> sorry that that really irritates me <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that that's and like I say, Anneke. It begins with the book Ancillary Justice. Um, there's um, a book I've actually just picked up. I don't generally read YA anymore, but this one I couldn't resist. It's by like I said, I've only just picked it up, so I've not started it yet. But the concept is amazing. Uh, so it's Kaylin Bayron, and the book is called Cinderella Is Dead. It's like I say, YA, it's kind of, it's fantasy, but there's kind of a dystopian element to society. It's set 200 years after Cinderella. And like that was all kind of real, essentially. And it's kind of a queer reimagining. The main characters are both, I think, people of colour. Um, and the author is a person of colour as well. Um, so I've just picked up, I haven't started yet. But that concept, I was like, oh, like Cinderella is dead. First of all, stands out. And then, yeah, the fact that it's, a queer person of colour reimagining. I'm really intrigued to get started on that one. Yeah. It's a very provocative title. It would definitely get yes. my attention. Right. Yeah. You couldn't walk, and also the cover is gorgeous. Like you couldn't walk past that title. You can scroll past that title. And you can't walk past that cover. It's like, oh, what? What is this about? So that's why, even though I don't read, why I had to stop and have a closer look, kind of thing. I do think because I, I know some people who do like the fairy tale retellings. And, mm. and this is the great fun of our reading. Some are doing, they're really taking it out of context and turning it all upside down. And that is really like, there's so much to play with and so much to kick against. Exactly. In a sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's really like taken it another level removed. So I'm excited to dip into that one once I've uh, finished my current project and uh, have a bit of time to read. The other author I wanted to mention is Jessica M. Butler who full disclosure is a friend of mine also but she also writes epic fantasy books uh, that have romance in she's an indigenous author she's from north america her world building and so on and like and her approach to really having a non like white european characters and culture and so on you know she really i would say dips into that way more but well, not dips in i dip into it she like dives in <laughs> so she's definitely one to look out for and she has another of like has some standalones and has the two raw chronicles my mind's gone blank on the name now but jessica m butler she recently changed from jm butler she is a diverse author and also writes about diversity and the other one is um may sage 
who is, I read her fantasy, which has romance in again, because everything I read does. Um, and she actually doesn't always write, she often writes white characters, but I think it's really important to, to support authors of colour, or support people of colour, you know, because if we say that a wall actually, if you're an author of colour, you need to write characters of colour. Well, a lot of studies appear to have shown that those books make less money. So you're automatically saying, well, you're going to make less money. Whereas white people going around writing, writing about white characters sell more, you know, are more likely to sell more books um, when they put white characters on the cover, for example. So I think even if a, an author of colour is writing or a, a diverse author is writing non-diverse characters, I guess still a, a good reason to go and pick their books up. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to um, find the links to all their work and just put them in the show notes for everyone to, to have a look at. That's great. I'm really intrigued by some of these. Yeah, they're pretty much all new titles to me, so that's exciting. It's like yeah. every time we have an interview, our TBR list is just exploding. Yeah, I know. It's like, just like, don't go on. That's a dangerous or question. Talk or yeah. read any articles about books. <laughs> just yes my, my, to pile. Be, my to be read list is extremely long at this point and it's funny because doing this podcast and working on my own books I have less time to read than you know before yes so we have one one, one last question here and then I'm looking at the clock and um, we should probably wrap up yes what would be your advice to anyone wanting to include to write um, more diverse characters in their work? Cool. So <laughs> I'm not just going to say read history because I did. Um, no, <laughs> I mean, I, I do say that to people. But <laughs> it's not a bad idea. <laughs> that is true. I do. But I am aware that not everyone is, is as into history as my context. Number one strength loving self is. But um, I think the most important thing to bear in mind, I suppose this at risk of repeating myself goes back to what I was saying about my personal lens not seeing not having a default I suppose of white male blah blah blah. diverse characters are just like any other character they're human exactly like like I was saying earlier when I flip a coin like why not a woman in that role why not have someone who's non-binary serves at the bar that your character goes up to why not a person of color who is the judge in the big courtroom scene like why not obviously sometimes there may be a very good reason in your world whether it's the real world or a fantasy world for you not to have that but if there isn't why not why why not have that I think especially I know it's very it can be very intimidating and certain quarters like Twitter and so on are frankly scary places sometimes you know you think well this person's getting slammed because they wrote a character of colour and got something wrong or they wrote a gay person and got that wrong I better never do that because otherwise I'm going to get slammed too so I understand like you know and and don't make one you know a character whose experience is different from yours your main character without doing the work for it but these these characters you know that populate your world it doesn't have to be the main character who is has this diverse feature or this diverse aspect to them or this this feature that's different from you it can be everyone it can be everyone else it can be all these other different people and again it doesn't have to necessarily be a big a big deal but you might start noticing that actually you keep having you know when you start writing that bar scene actually yeah 
I've made it a white guy behind the bar. And oh my God, like three scenes later when they're at the courtroom, it's a white guy who's the judge. Why have I done that? Oh, hold on. Is it because that is, is my default? So I think those characters should be everywhere. So just start being aware that are you constantly doing a character like you or that's like the, the default? Personally, I know that not everyone may agree with this, but to me, if I, if someone gets it wrong, I know intention is not magical. I know that. But if someone gets it wrong, I think, and they, and they are trying to do the right thing, but they got it wrong and they made a mistake. We should be approaching that. And I try to approach it from like, to me, the outcome, the best outcome of that is that person grows and they learn and then in the future they get it right. Yeah. Unfortunately, not everyone approaches it like that. Um, and I accept that I have the privilege of being a nowadays middle-class um, cis woman who presents white. Like, I get that. I know I've not had to do the emotional baggage and labour that a lot of other people have had to do. So it's easy for me to say that. <laughs> so I know that's not necessarily a comfort to people, but there are other people who think this way. And I think if you're going to do this, you have to accept that you'll get something wrong. But the best way to combat that is to educate yourself and, um, and just keep learning and keep trying to do better and listen more than you speak <laughs> and, and all those sorts of things. So that even if you do, when, when you inevitably get something wrong, you can hopefully do better next time. Yeah, just keep. Yeah, I like it. it reminds me of our calm the fuck down checklist. <laughs> Yeah, that's the checklist from season one about what happens if you get called out. We literally made a checklist for everyone and put it on a website as an extra for that episode. That's yeah, like the first thing that. you do is breathe. <laughs> like first thing is always breathe. And then, you know, and also we try to approach it as well as like sort of an affirmative reading. And I think somewhere in the checklist we say, if it is really, if it is really bad, you have the power to change it. Mm. I do think I um we haven't mentioned, but I'm an indie author. Like I if I were to find, you know, if I find something that's horrific that I hadn't realized I'd done, I can like pull my book down, I can change things, I can fix it, like you said. Obviously, that isn't always the case for um traditionally published authors. No, no. But yeah, we have that the beauty of of indie is that we can do that. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was great yeah thank you oh, for thank coming you. on and sharing all this I wish this was a travel podcast because I would so ask you questions about visiting Istanbul and your research there <laughs> but <laughs> unfortunately I can't do that today but maybe we'll meet up at a writing conference someday and I can ask you all my questions I will bore you with my photos definitely <laughs> oh then I will bring all of my photos of China because oh my gosh travel oh, is amazing amazing I miss it <laughs> Yes, same. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for all of this information and for your unique perspective, because you really did bring a unique perspective where you're, you're straddling the line of, of both sides of many of these questions. I'm excited to share this with our audience. Yes. And I'm going to put everything in the show notes, including where listeners can find Claire, but also where people can find uh, Claire services. So everything will be in the show notes for those who want to get in touch. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you very much for inviting me on and creating this uh, lovely safe space to discuss these things.
Thank you for joining us. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you found this episode helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too. To get our Doing Diversity in Writing Toolkit, which includes all bonus material from Season 1, go to representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. Here you will also find our episode show notes. Happy writing and see you next episode.